I was what I call regurgitating. I was thinking in terms of covering content. And it took me a long time before I realized that the way to think about it is we don't teach subjects, we teach students. And there's a big difference between covering content and teaching a person. The Digital to Learn podcast is dedicated to exploring both what's new and what's good in the use of technology in teaching and learning. Our mission is to have the best minds sitting in front of our microphones, sharing evidence-based strategies for digital teaching and learning. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Thank you for joining us. And now, the Digital to Learn podcast. Welcome to the Digital to Learn podcast. I'm Tiffany Snyder, and I'm here again with my favorite co-host and friend, Brad Garner. Welcome back, Brad. Uh, thanks, Tiffany. I just have to take a little side trip here. Oh, no. You know how I look forward to the weekly podcast journal that comes out, that gives updates on podcasts and all those kind of things. In this last issue, they published a list of the 10 most highly overrated podcast hosts, and I was number seven. I am, I'm heartbroken. At least seven is some kind of lucky number. But I just want you to know I'm grieving. Did you want to be rated number one? You're number one overrated in my book. Is that what you're looking for? Well, we have a returning guest, another all-star who is certainly not overrated. And that is the editor of the online classroom newsletter, our friend John Orlando. It's great to have you back, John. Thank you very much. I love coming to this show. John, you need to know that we drop your name all the time. Oh, hopefully you don't step on it after you drop it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. Yes, I know. I'm not sure you want to do this next question, Tiffany. I don't think we can really trust John with a digital magic wand. Oh my, I'm reviewing that like, wow. (laughs) Digital magic wand, you're right. You know, the magic wand. I'm from a small town, Cherubusco, Indiana, Turtletown, USA. And there's a famous restaurant in our town called the magic wand. Are you doing air quotes while you said famous? Yes, (laughs) I am. There are thousands of clowns. The restaurant is decorated in thousands of clowns. Magic wand has a different spin for me. I thought you were going to tell me it was a Harry Potter theme or something like that. (laughs) I know. Wow. It's a diner with like cinnamon toast and ice cream and clowns. Because clowns can get scary, you know. They can. They are uh, scary. They are very scary. In fact, it's a phenomenon of people putting on clown masks to scare people. It's actually a phenomenon that's going on in the United States. I can't think of the name of it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I never liked it much. People, it'd be your birthday and they'd say, well, let me take you to the magic wand and buy you ice cream. And I'd be like, please don't. (laughs) (laughs) I know, sensory overload. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Oh, goodness. All right, John, if you could wave your digital magic wand. What are three skills or dispositions that you would magically give to all faculty? Okay, so the first one is mm-hmm. how to communicate rather than regurgitate. Great. So again, I go back to my training. I was trained to regurgitate, meaning cover content. So my background's in philosophy. So I would be taught that, okay, if you're going to do ancient philosophy, you have to think about what topics to cover. Okay, we're going to do Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, we're going to do epistemology, metaphysics. And then I would just roll through the material like I was writing some kind of article. I was what I call regurgitating. I was thinking in terms of covering content. And it took me a long time before I realized that the way to think about it is we don't teach subjects, we teach students. 
And there's a big difference between covering content and teaching a person. Teaching a person means you don't think in terms of transferring knowledge from your brain to their brain orally, like a computer can transfer data between one database to another via electrical lines. What happens with humans is that your receiver builds the knowledge in their mind from cues that you give them, could be oral, visual, whatever, and prior knowledge. Learning has a property that we learn on the periphery of what we already know by connecting with prior knowledge. It's actually our brains are built, our connectionist networks. So what you need to do is you need to think about how to plant the seed of knowledge in the air student's head from your cues. And that's just a whole different way of looking at things. And I tell faculty is if you want to understand the difference between communicating and regurgitating, ask yourself a simple question. Why don't you use PowerPoint for a marriage proposal? Okay. Why, don't you, why don't you do a marriage proposal by pulling up a PowerPoint and say, okay, uh, I would like to cover five reasons why we should get married. Number one, tax breaks. According to this article, <laughs> average married family earns number two, number three, at the end, any questions? <laughs> yeah, you'd be comical or thinking, ha ha ha. Oh my. But that's, isn't that exactly how faculty do presentations at conferences? That's kind of the way they think about when they're doing lectures. Well, we don't do that. When you think about why don't you do it for a marriage proposal? Well, because it's important, because you want to communicate. You're trying to get a message across to your listener yeah. and you want them to act on it. The message, I love you, I don't want to marry you. And you want them to act on it by saying, yes, I do. So then, what do you do? You write, I love you in the sand, right? I writing, I love you in the sand is communicating, right? Getting on a knee is communicating. You're literally in a different mindset. When you do a marriage proposal, you're in a communication mindset. How will I communicate? Which means starting with getting your audience attention, right? All communication begins with getting your audience attention. If you want to talk about your child's drinking problem, you first say, we're going to turn off the TV, we're going to go to the kitchen, we're going to sit down, and now we're going to talk, right? You get your audience attention. If you haven't got their attention in the first 90 seconds, you've lost them. So things like that, getting their attention. How will I speak in a language they understand? How will I speak in language that interests them, motivates them, all those things? So that's the big thing, moving from a covering content I call regurgitating mentality to a communicating, reaching your learner mentality. I had to rethink everything I was doing when I did that, literally. A second thing is you had mentioned it too in your opening on feedback, focus on feedback. I was taught to lecture. I was not taught to give feedback. I was taught to grade. I was taught that the way you teach, the way students learn is that a faculty member spews content, lectures, and then the assessment is to measure how much they caught. So if they caught 90% or more of what you pitched, you gave them an A, 80% to 90 is a B or whatever. That's a grading-based mentality to assessments. That's just what you might call apple sorting. I'm sorting the good apples from the bad apples. But assessments should be a way of learning. They are a learning moment, an opportunity to teach the student. And that means focusing on feedback, not just telling them you got it wrong, therefore you get a B, but here's what you did wrong. 
you know, here's the standard of doing it well. Here's how you missed it. Here's your mistake. And here's what to do better. And what I like to say is that means not thinking like a grader, but thinking like a coach. Because coaches are feedback oriented because they're performance oriented. Coaches are rated on the performance of their players, the winning percentage of their team, right? That's how they're literally rated. You know, they're literally fired and hired based on that. So they are performance oriented. They're not rated on how well they lecture. They rate on how well their their players do. So they focus on performance. And because of that, they do almost no what we might think of as lecturing. Mostly they watch what their players do and they give feedback on how to improve, so when you are performance oriented, you realize that feedback is the major thing you should focus on and not communication of content. And that's something I think more faculty should learn. I mean, I think maybe it's getting a little better because we're at least trying to train faculty now. When I was a grad student, you're just assigned to an older you know, teacher and you're supposed to follow them around and learn how to teach. Well, if they're just lecturing, then you learn to lecture. <laughs> so now we're doing a better job. We're starting to do a better job of actually helping upcoming higher education faculty learn how to teach. The third thing I think my magic wand would be is for especially online learning, understanding how to write discussion prompts. And here's another example where faculty fall back into the wrong paradigm because you continuously hear faculty complain about online discussion. They say, my students aren't really discussing much. They're repeating each other. Surveys of students find that online students very often dislike discussions. They find it's just perfunctory. Though faculty tend to blame students, the problem 99% of the time is with the discussion prompt. And the problem is the faculty members almost universally write discussion prompts as assignment prompts. They confuse a discussion prompt with an assignment prompt. So what they'll do is they'll say, describe somebody's theory of why doctors should be honest with patients and give two citations. Well, if you put that in a discussion, once the first student does it or second student, what's everyone else gonna say? They're just gonna repeat. That's an assignment prompt. What you're trying to do with an assignment is measure each individual student's understanding of a topic. So with an assignment, you can ask every student to do the same thing. You always do, right? And as long as they answer independently, you'll measure how much they understand it. But that's not discussion. Discussion is entirely different. If we're sitting around a cafe, I don't tell you, okay, repeat somebody's view and give me two citations. I don't expect citations when you and my, me are discussing something. Discussion is really about forming a group understanding of contributions from different people. It's about asking the students what they think. I'm not so much interested in what someone else thinks. Your research skills should be displayed in assignments but really not in discussions. In a cafe, I'm not looking for you to display your research skills. I'm just interested in your talk. So given the example before, and I, I teach medical ethics, so I use it. Instead of saying, repeat somebody's view on why doctors should be honest with patients, the example I would use, which is a real life example, is an 87-year-old woman is gone into surgery for a hysterectomy. On the way in, the doctor nicks a vein or artery, she starts bleeding. The doctor says, give her blood, sew her up. The nurse says, wait a minute, 
She's a Jehovah's Witness. She strictly forbade any blood. The doctor says, she's not dying on my table. Give her blood, which they do. Question, afterwards, do they tell the woman she got blood? That's a discussion question, because now anyone can start answering given their own kind of pre-philosophical intuitions. And when they do, they answer and they give a reason. Well, they need to because. And now they're giving their answer. They're defending their position, which you want to teach them. And of course, they're appealing to more fundamental principles, which you're teaching in the class. So that's a discussion question. And that's something faculty universally kind of don't understand. They fall back on assignment questions. They don't write good discussion prompts. And with the good discussion prompts, you generally get good discussion. So that's something I would like to do. <laughs> I love your use of the magic wand, John. I'm wondering, as you describe those three areas, you often mention how that was different than the way you were trained. What were the influences that turned you around into an entirely different direction in relation to teaching and learning? Yeah. So interesting thing happened. I married a sixth grade teacher and <laughs> she is quite literally an award-winning teacher. And, and I can say that she's my wife, so I'm not bragging for myself, but she got a national teaching award. So anyways, and one of the reasons is that she was taught about things like feedback through Grant Wiggins. If you're aware, he's one of the gurus of free feedback. We actually went to one of his conferences, spoke at one of them, met him, and he passed away a few years ago. But so I really learned that from her. And the other thing is that K through 12 teachers, especially prior to say high school, they really are more performance oriented because there's more of a measure of the outcomes of their teaching. There are now standardized tests. Students have to meet those standardized tests. I know there's complaints about it and then many of them are legitimate, but it does input an outcome-based orientation. And they can look and they can say, the students have left this class either understanding what they need for the next class or not. And, you know, as a teacher, she sees this too. She says, you know, they have to come into my sixth grade class. When we get to math, they have to understand certain math. If the prior teacher didn't cover it, she sees that. She has to communicate back to them. We're going to have to work this out because they're not coming in with what they need to do well in my class. So it's K through at least eight is much more outcome oriented. To some extent, you kind of lose it in high school for various reasons. There is some of that still, but you lose it a bit. But anyways, I think that's it. It's the structure. And when you think about it, there is almost no of that kind of outcome testing at the higher education level, certainly in my field of philosophy. It's not like to get your degree in philosophy, you have to you know, pass a test at the end of your four years. I mean, may, there are some areas, I think maybe there's more outcome testing or orientation, but you don't have that. Yeah. So it's something I think higher ed should focus more on, on those outcomes and you just don't see it as much. Well, since you brought this up, I, I need to interject a quote from Steve Martin. <laughs> who talked about philosophy and he observed that uh, you go to college for four years, five minutes after you graduate, you forget virtually all of what you learned. On the other hand, if you take one philosophy course, 
it messes you up for the rest of your life. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's right. We, we have, that's what we can tell the dean. Oh, look at these students. Look how messed up they are. That's us. See? Us. Yeah. <laughs> There's an outcome for There's you. There's an outcome. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting because I philosophy is probably a great example of how it's so easy to just fall into covering content because it's very easy to forget, you know, why is this interesting? Why is this important? And there was really no tether in my program, my graduate program about what's important in this, in a practical way. Because when you think about faculty, what's important to them is they can write articles about it. So it's a new unexplored area that they can write articles and get a big name, you know, articles that maybe a hundred people will read, but they don't see that from the student standpoint, they're not gonna write an article on it. So I think that also caused me to really think about, you know, what's the tether to reality? And that's where I kind of transformed a little bit more to medical ethics because I was actually teaching medical students. And I would sit mm -hmm. in hospital discussions of real life cases, like the kind I discussed. And like every week I was on a medical ethics discussion board, we would have a case that came up that week. Very often the question is whether to remove life support and allow someone to die. You know, that, that is a real life question, right? So those are the kinds of situations I brought in. And of course, as medical students, I tell them likely, you're going to face these kinds of questions and you'll definitely other kinds may not be life death, but other kinds of questions. So I kind of gravitated towards the most applied area of philosophy I could find. Yeah. Yeah. That made a it, difference. It makes me wonder the intro to philosophy that I had in my college experience was a three hour night class once a week, how different it would be. It was a great instructor and a great course, but I'm just thinking we were talking about modulized education what would philosophy be like for the student who had that video chunks and reflection built in and all that versus a three hour kind of lecture experience? So just curious now, you know? Yeah, exactly. I think that would be interesting. And I could definitely see more interesting real life examples too, because one thing I noticed that when I sit in discussions with philosophy instructors, they'll make really interesting points. It, I'll see that this is a kind of thinking that can be very helpful because there might be public policy issues. And you, you could say like, well, the common view is this, but you know, that's simply, they're missing this really important point. And that's really what I think the value is. You can see that you know, there are important public policy issues, you've got to vote, and you can evaluate whether your candidate is on the right on that. That's really what it's about. So we kind of show how it's a way of thinking where you can say, no, that doesn't make sense. And you can better evaluate things that are coming to you. And I think that's what really we should have done a little more of. We're hoping that just by learning how to analyze Aristotle will kind of improve your thinking in general. And maybe it does. But to make that better connection, and again, using short videos, and again, public policy, here's a comment, public policy question, like defund the police or something like that. <laughs> what are the arguments for against it? Does that make any sense? Stuff like that. And that's a good example of applying critical thinking. Yeah. When it comes to faculty using video, and it reminds me of the AR, VR conversation from earlier, but I think faculty, at least at the institution we work with, know that video is important to some regard, but kind of wonder how to get started. And we're grateful. We have Mike Jones, who also works on the podcast with us, and he can produce all kinds of fantastic video. 
But when it comes down to it, we are also trying to teach and show our faculty how to get started even with the devices that they own or just how to you know, get their feet wet in that area. So what kinds of advice or thoughts do you have about faculty using video and even Zoom for their online teaching? Well, the big thing I tell faculty is there are more types of video than just live shoots like Zoom. And my favorite type is actually what I call digital storytelling. <laughs> it's where you use imagery and narration. And the advantage of that is that if you don't feel comfortable speaking in front of a camera, you don't have to. With digital storytelling, you don't have to. What you're doing is you're telling a story, and a story can be more or less a lesson, and then you are simply showing images that represent what you're talking about. And that's much more powerful very often than face-to-face. -face. A good example is I did this talk, or I've done talks on how social media has changed the world. And very often people don't understand, they, they give social media a bad rap and they say only bad things happen. Well, they're an example, for instance, Arab Spring. I tell them, now, why did Arab Spring happen now? Mubarak, who was the president of Egypt, was in power for 23 years. Why at this point in history was he overthrown? Why not any time earlier? And it's because of social media. Social media allowed people to self-organize in ways they couldn't before. Now, when I'm talking about that, I show them an image. And this image was a, a kind of a famous photo now of somebody at a um, celebration after the Mubarak regime fell. He's holding up a sign in Arabic that says, thank you, Facebook. <laughs> and what a perfect image that <laughs> amplifies and captures what I'm talking about. And you see this guy holding that up and then boom, that amplifies it. And the best thing is that it helps you remember because they say, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words. And I think it's because most of human evolution, we evolved where humans are about one and a half million years of evolution without written language. Most of evolution happened where we learned visually. We had to look and we had to be able to distinguish the dangerous animal from the not dangerous animal. So our minds are hardwired to preserve images and provide them with significance. So that's, I think, the power of digital storytelling. You get a good image and it will provide you with a memorable uh, a hook to hang your knowledge on and, and give it some significance. But again, it's important that faculty do that. Unfortunately, what do they fall back on? Well, they read you bullet points like you're illiterate. No. That's the opposite. When you read someone's bullet points for visuals, you actually distract them from the message because they're reading the bullet points at one speed and you're speaking at another. So it's like uh, the same song being played at two different speeds at once. That's a distraction. Bullet points are a distraction. You actually improve learning with no visuals at all. So I tell people, you know, think of the State of the Union. What do you think of the bullet points from the State of the Union? Well, they don't use them. Right. You only need visuals when you need to use visuals, right? They don't use them, right? So you don't, bullet points are projecting your notes. Basically, those of us who grew up with three by five cards before PowerPoint came along didn't know what to do when they gave us PowerPoint. So we put up our three by five cards. We projected <laughs> our notes. We didn't know what else. Because again, no one taught us. So we decided, oh, visuals are for putting up our three by five cards. <laughs> anyways, that's the big thing. 
There's even animation that can do a wonderful job. Again, it's not going to look like Pixar or something. You know, it costs them, what, 50 million to make a movie, probably more than that. But there's stuff like video scribe. It's in the form of, I think they call it RSA animate, where you, images can come on and off the screen. You can do it with a hand, bringing images on and off. You can do a hand writing. Very visually interesting, very simple to do. So that's one thing. You don't have to do live shots. And then the second thing is if you want to do a live shot, there are a lot of things to kind of learn so it doesn't become hopelessly boring. Unfortunately, most people, when they get in front of a camera, they drain the emotion out of their face, out of their voice. They fall into a monotonous talk. It just becomes boring. And there's some things you should do. There's a reason why network news announcers make millions of dollars, because there's only a few people who can do that and not be hopelessly boring, right? So really, if you want to do live shots, I'd say really, you get a little training on how to do live shots so that you're not boring, frankly, but you don't have to do live shots. That's what I do. I start them by saying, let's try some non-live shots. And then if you want to do live shots, let's think about some ways you can do it. You don't have to be in front of your computer. You can go outside. Uh, You can be sitting on a park bench on campus. And I think that actually makes you more relaxed and fall out of the academic covering content mentality and more of a conversational. So get to get out of your office and shoot somewhere else. And I think you'll probably just improve just in virtue of that. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the reasons I so much enjoy having John on the podcast is he makes brilliant points, but he also illustrates them mm-hmm. with great examples. So thank you so much for that, John. This has been uh, very instructive. Thanks. Thanks. I scribble when you're talking pictures, you use so many analogies, it's very helpful. And I can't even help it on the side, you know, scribbling pictures of what you're saying. And it's <laughs> helping me learn, you know. Thank oh, you. So it's a, can I ask you, so when you take notes, very often you actually draw pictures to make notes. Typically they're pictures. I just use computer paper. Actually, I recycle junk mail, <laughs> turn it over, use the blank side. And so I feel like I'm using them more and pen and just draw. See, that that's a fascinating topic in itself. I hope well, you'll you. be interviewed. <laughs> you know, I think that's really fascinating because I was actually taught literally in third grade to take notes via outline form in a form I still use to this day. And it works for me, but I think that's really interesting about drawing pictures as a note-taking device. And maybe you should be interviewed for one of these. Maybe you have been. But I think that's a really interesting topic. I thank you very much for bringing that up. You're welcome. I've never shared that before, I don't think. But if you break <laughs> into my office, you'll find drawers of these. <laughs> oh, really? So, thank you. Oh, interesting. Wow. Now you gave me a thought of something I might write on. I mean, can I interview you for maybe an article or something? <laughs> Let's talk after the podcast. Okay. That's a great idea. That's a great idea. Uh, yeah. I'm glad our audience can't see me blushing, but yes, you can. <laughs> wow. John, I'm not sure you can afford her. Yeah. <laughs> afford her time. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's pretty pricey. Brad, <laughs> but I, I'll broker this deal, so don't worry about right. it. You'll collect your 10%. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast, John, with us. And if our listeners 
have not already accessed your newsletter, we're gonna make sure that that is available and advertised for them on our website, www.digitaltolearn.com with numerical two. And we look forward to having everybody back next week. Thank you very much for this opportunity. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for joining us on Digital to Learn. If you enjoyed this podcast, there are three things we ask you to do. One, come back and join us again. Two, tell your friends about us. And three, give us a positive ranking on your favorite podcast platform. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Embrace the future. Always keep learning.